We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Piazza, Catcher, Slugger, Icon, Star, the publisher, University of Nebraska Press, the author, Greg Prince. Please join me as we welcome home Greg Prince to the clubhouse. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Jay. Great to be back. Oh, thank you. It's, uh, I think at least a third time, maybe more, uh, in this chair. I know many times in those chairs, but... Always a nice seat yeah. at uh, the Brigino Clubhouse. Well, it's always a pleasure. So, mainly for those listening to the podcast, uh, just very quickly, Greg Prince is co-creator of the blog Faith and Fear and Flushing, the daily destination for, quote, Mets fans who like to read. His memoir of the same name was published in 2009 and was followed in 2016 by Amazing Again. He has written about baseball for the New York Times, Huffington Post, and ESPN.com, served as a consultant to the film The Last Play at Shea, and helped organize the New York Mets 50th anniversary conference at Hofstra University. And, uh, my little bio about Greg is that, uh, this is just my opinion, hopefully I don't offend anybody, but uh, of all the writers who cur are currently are writing about the New York Mets, he's Tom Seaver, he's the best. So uh, that's just my opinion, so. Well, I guess I should start packing for Cincinnati. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that uh, later. Uh, and it's, it's funny because, uh, not to give it away, but obviously it was in the newsletter. Uh, for any true diehard Mets fan, today's uh, June 15th, 2017, the 40th anniversary of 1977, uh, 1977 uh, a very sad day indeed for Mets fans. So we'll get, we'll get to that part of the uh, anniversary story later. It's funny, Met, Met anniversaries don't have a great, uh, it's like a sad story instead of a happy story. If you want it to be, I think. I mean, we're, well, you know, it's a milestone, so it, it takes precedence. But June 15th, uh, Don Clendenin, 1969, happy story, he was traded for. 83, Keith Hernandez, Kent, ah. unless you're a Neil Allen guy. That was June 15th. Yeah, yeah. Ah, so, yeah okay. and uh, June 15th, 2002, uh, the return of Roger Clemens to the Shea Stadium mound, where, and the Shea, and batting at Shea Stadium, uh, you know, there's, if anybody recalls, uh, not, not to get too far into uh, Piazza content, but uh, I, I imagine most of you remember that Roger Clemens threw a bat at uh, Mike Piazza, threw a pitch at his head, and there was no chance to retaliate, as they say, because of the DH rule and Joe Torre not using Clemens at Shea Stadium, so 2002, two years after the uh, the crimes in question, at least in my mind, um, Clemens is pitching at Shea Stadium and like, okay, we're gonna get this over with, he's gonna have to stand in. And the pitcher for the Mets that day was Sean Estes, who had nothing to do with any of this, because he was a San Francisco Giant in 2000. <laughs> in fact, the Mets beat the Giants in the playoffs, part of getting to the World Series, but it's like, okay, Estes, like, you've gotta avenge Roger Clemens, and he, throws at Roger Clemens' ample posterior and misses. <laughs> and the Mets won 8 nothing that day. Piazza homers off his nemesis. Sean Estes, a pitcher, homers off Clemens. And nobody's happy. <laughs> because it's like Clemens got away without a bruise on his rear end or anywhere else. And uh, yeah, I guess the fact that we're talking about an anniversary and already I'm back to, eh, nobody's happy. <laughs> See, that's perfect. With great, you just say June 15th and all, all this comes out. Uh, no, th thank you, thank you. Well, we'll uh, so it's good to know that you're more optimistic than I am about the Mets, as always. So uh, we'll get to the sad part of the anniversary later. Uh, uh, just to get us going as we usually start, if you could just let us know how this particular book uh, came about. Um, you know, the, the genesis of it in the, in the short term was Mike Piazza, beloved New York, met on the fourth try, <coughs> elected to the Hall of Fame, January of 2016. Uh, first met since Tom Seaver, in, in that sense of going in as a Met, there have been other players who had kind of passed through, 
but Piazza heavily identified with the Mets. Um, obviously, Mets fans greeted this news with joy. You know, a nice thing happened in January. But what, what struck me was along the way, the, the three tries before when he didn't go in, um, there was a lot of frustration and annoyance. You, it may surprise you, Jay, people do express their their dismay on Twitter these days. So um, I've heard that rumor. Yeah, so it was just kind of a thing that struck me like, why are we so hung up on this as Mets fans? I certainly was. But, you know, we're talking about a guy who was no longer on the team, who had left, you know, everybody wished him well. But it was like this, this sense of we're taking this kind of personally. And I just wanted to kind of dive into the idea of what makes somebody an icon, to use one of the words in the title. Uh, what enshrines them in our hearts and minds beyond just, gee, that guy was good. And so I wanted to kind of explore the Piazza years, uh, kind of capture it, preserve it in one place, and, and also kind of start with what the Mets were like before Piazza, uh, what the 90s were like, kind of a, to me, at least at that point, kind of an unexplored period in both baseball and team history. So I kind of backed up the clock to Bring him up again, Tom Seaver, going in the Hall of Fame, uh, August of 92, since he was the president. And the timing is such that this was exactly 30 days before Piazza debuts in the major leagues. So in a way, they're sort of passing in the night, their ships, kind of, you know, one is where he's going to be forever in Cooperstown. One is just starting on the road, and who knows what's going to become of him. He's just a minor league catcher for the Dodgers at that point who gets a September call-up. And playing out in the background is the team that Seaver went into the Hall of Fame for. The Mets having aesthetically one of the worst years uh, that they ever had, 92. So Piazza comes up. He's like I said, he's just some guy. Seaver goes on the wall. There's really no reason in real time to put them together. But then as the book goes on, I want to kind of follow the two paths of the Mets, who had had this awful 1992, and the Piazza of also with a team that had an awful 1992, kind of this fresh start for both of them allegedly. Well, Piazza leads the Dodgers back to prominence. He wins Rookie of the Year. He's on the cover of Sports Illustrated. He's this great story because he's the 62nd round pick. He's the all-star game. Uh, he helps knock out the Giants, the Dodgers arch rival on the last day of the year. And it is the polar opposite to what's going on with the Mets who lose 103 games, their worst season since 1965. But it's not just the losing, it's just that was the year, put it this way, a book came out that year called The Worst Team Money Could Buy, about the 92 Mets. The book was already out of date, because <laughs> 93 was worse. <laughs> they were worse on the field, they were worse off the field, and you know, the book happily dives in. I, I have to admit, I, I, I get a perverse kick out of like, I'm reliving these terrible times, I guess because I know Piazza's coming. But uh, in the book, you know, talk about Vince Coleman and the firecrackers uh, that he threw at a girl in the parking lot in Dodger Stadium, because that's what he wanted your all-star outfielder to do. He wasn't all-star anymore, actually. <laughs> but, um, you know, Bobby Bonilla threatening the guy who wrote, Bob Clappish, the guy who wrote the book, Brett Saberhagen picking up a super soaker, filling with bleach and getting reporters, which I'm surprised they don't do at the White House. Um, <laughs> so, Okay, I, I mentioned Piazza hits the home run that helps knock out the Giants, puts a nice cap on their season. What's going on with the Mets? Where are they on that day? October 3rd, a very famous baseball date. You know, Bobby Thompson hit his home run, a lot of other things. Um, the Mets are finishing in Miami against the first year Marlins, who they finish behind in the standings. It's raining. <laughs> Dallas Green doesn't really care anymore, <laughs> so he sends Dwight Gooden up as a pinch hitter. And again, it's not like, oh, like, like Terry Collins every night who runs out of players. He had lots of guys on the bench because it's September or October at this point. But it's like, sure, Doc, you want to hit. We're, like, we're no longer worried about protecting you. Because, yeah, remember, Gooden, one of the things again, in the book, you know, Gooden was Piazza at one point. He was the bright, shining star of baseball, and that's over by 93, sadly. Anyway, Gooden's pinch hitting in the rain, in the game that doesn't matter, where they make them sit through a ninth inning rain delay for an hour. Piazza, I was, Piazza is hitting these two home runs against the Giants. Vin Scully is on the radio. I happen to be out of town on the West Coast listening to that game. Vin Scully, who I, to that point had seen it all, it's like, Mike Piazza is putting a cap on the most amazing <laughs> Dodger history. It's like, 
Wow, and it just like stuck with me for years of like these polar opposites, and they wound up together. So I wanted to kind of not only relive the, the thrill of minute 93 Mets, but also uh, try to follow the path of how the Mets and Piazza came together beyond the fact that, beyond the, the more famous aspect of the story, which was the Dodgers trading to the Marlins, and the Marlins were planning to get rid of him, and the Mets needed some help. So to me, that kind of a, kind of a hidden history almost, where the Mets were in those years and their, their route to getting good enough to need a Piazza. Because you know what, when I think back to 69, mentioned Don Clendenna before, you can kind of, in hindsight, you know, it was a miracle, but you could see it coming. Right. You could see the kind of team they were putting together, who they scouted, who they signed as amateurs when the draft came in, the kind of pitching they had, the young talent. 86, you can certainly see in hindsight, you could see it you know, in, in real time almost. You know, we got tired of waiting, but once the young players came up and they made trade for Keith Hernandez on June 15th, you know, the Gary Carter trade. The team that ends up going to the World Series in 2000, going to the playoffs at the end of the 90s, there was no seeing it coming, really, until they got good. There's not even in hindsight. There was no grand plan. <laughs> you know, they, they switched out general managers. They switched out managers. They got excited about young pitching, uh, so-called Generation K. They had this, you know, bulge of offense from guys who, you know, they acquired like Bernard Gilkey and Lance Johnson, who we, as fans, clung to. And then they just kind of disappeared. Uh, Todd Hundley took, took about six years to become the superstar, and then he gets hurt. So, you know, ex with a handful of exceptions, like Edgardo Alfonso, Bobby Jones, John Franco had been there forever. Um, there was no grand coming together. It just sort of happened. And I wanted to try to kind of put that together and put it in perspective and get us to that moment in 1998 where Piazza becomes a Met and then, you know, to, to use a, a Met marketing slogan from uh, 1983, now the fun starts. <laughs> Yeah, no, you, you you brought back a lot of memories. I'm sorry. And uh, <laughs> yes, that's okay. Uh, but you set it up very well that way. It, it it all makes sense. And I just want to read something. Usually, I don't read anything from the acknowledgments, but there's there's this. I really enjoyed this uh, in the in the acknowledgments because I think for the people who think this is a biography of uh, Piazza, it is not. So, uh, as you've just described. But uh, you write in the acknowledgments, as I attempted to describe this book to my occasional spiritual guide, Mark Mailer, he clarified my thinking for me. It's about the Mets fans' relationship to Piazza, Mark suggested, like the Bible is the story of the relationship between God and the Jewish people. I would call it a love story, but with a surfeit of blood and guts, idol worship and incest, true love never runs smooth. And uh, you set up quite a bit of that just now, in, in some ways. That uh, I love that. Yeah, that was a great description my friend gave me, and that's what it felt like every night <laughs> during the kind of shall we say to use a phrase that they would probably use from today then if it existed, peak piazza, uh, ninety-eight to one, where the Mets under Bobby Valentine, who was kind of the the guiding force, um, you know, think about those years. The Mets almost won a wild card. The Mets almost won a pennant. The Mets almost won a World Series. And then for an encore, they almost won a division that they were in a race that they hadn't won in since September. So you were constantly, you know, literally, and when I say literally, I mean figuratively, but literally <laughs> on the edge of your seat. Like, at least I was. And, you know, the fans who I interacted with then, you know, every night because, you know, one wrong move and you're, you're going home. And... You, know, you, you lived through the 90s as a Mets fan waiting to be in that position again. And that's why you know, I wanted to spend some detail on those teams and the cast that surrounded Mike, the guys who, who gave us those sorts of memories, you know, the Venturas and the Olaroods and you know, even the Benny Agbayanis and Al Weigers, Rick Reed, guys like that. And again, most of those guys were sort of, especially up to when Piazza came along, were kind of chance acquisitions. Marlins having a fire sale, uh, a guy who was a replacement player who nobody wanted, a guy who the Blue Jays gave up on. There wasn't really, to my to my mind, then and now, after you know revisiting it all, there was no plan. It just sort of worked. Valentine had a had a knack for using little known guys and giving them a chance who 
worked out. And then, you know, once they got real close in 98, they started to behave like a, you know, a contender and going out and getting the, the Venturas and Ricky Hendersons. And those were, you know, kind of, I'm always fascinated by the fact that we as fans get really hung up on guys. We do it now, we do it with this team, we did it with the team from last year, the year before, and the lousy teams before those, where I'm gonna use Kevin McReynolds as an example, for some reason I always think of him. Like the late eighties, WFAN is new, and the Mets are, you know, still a hot topic, back page is all about it's like well, what about Kevin McReynolds? Is Kevin McReynolds gonna smile more? Is Kevin McReynolds gonna stick around after the game? Why is Kevin McReynolds slumping? What's, what's with Kevin McReynolds' defense? Why didn't Kevin McReynolds win the MVP? Kevin McReynolds is the best player. He's better than that. And then one day, Kevin McReynolds is gone. <laughs> and except for people like me, nobody <laughs> brings him up. And this just gets repeated over and over again. So there, there's a sense of, I just kind of wanted to, if you're reading a portion of this book, I, I want you to kind of be back in 1993, or more happily, back in 1999. I, I think one of the things that uh, kind of shaped the way I approached the book, I, I had to write a sample chapter. My editor asked me for it so they could give it to the sales force so they knew what they were selling. But I didn't have the blood and guts uh, description yet. <laughs> and I wrote about, um, you know, it turned out to be very long, a lot of it's not in the book, but uh, about the 93 All-Star game. Here's Piazza, he's host of baseball, you know, in the company of Ken Griffey and Barry Bonds. And everybody's having a great time, except for the Met fans. And I, you know, read this out loud to my wife who, let's put it this way, she, she loves the Mets, she's not a big baseball fan. But uh, she kind of, she loves, has, you. she loves me and I love her, but um, by osmosis, she's a very big Mets fan without realizing it, let's put it that way. And so I read this stuff aloud and I'm like, well, I'm sure they're not interested, but what do you think? And she's like, I remember all those names. I remember those, those guys. I remember those games. And it, like the fact that it sort of, struck a chord and could kind of recreate that time, I wanted to do that. And that's kind of how I followed through, certainly, you know, to the end of Piazza's career and, you know, before getting into the part where, how do we enshrine him and, you know, the road to the Hall of Fame and the number of retirement, that sort of thing. Before we get to uh, Piazza becoming a Met, just in general, so that you go from, let's say, 93 to 97, uh, when you write a book like this, you obviously, you saw, you saw uh, a ton of those games, but it's a while ago. When you start to go through this, just for, uh, from a, a writer's perspective, how do you go back and, and go back to those years? Uh, what, what are you doing to take us through those years for, for yourself? Well, I'm told that I have a preternaturally strong memory. Um, so that's a good place to start. That said, like anybody, your memory plays tricks on you a little bit. So, thanks. Goodness for YouTube. <laughs> Thank goodness for Baseball Reference. Thank goodness for you know New York Times archives and other newspapers, and for being a pack rat. So I wanted to kind of. There were a lot of things I, I had. I mentioned the Dwight Gooden pinch hit. What the reason that stuck with me so much is because I, like I said, I didn't see it. I was in Las Vegas. I'm the, I'm the one person in Las Vegas running from my hotel room down to a sports book, not to place a bet on anything, but to see do they have the Mets score on the last day of a 103 loss season. It was either that or, you know, call sports phone, which was still around. But anyway, um, I remember reading or hearing somewhere along the way, do you know they let Dwight Gooden bat left-handed? Because that was always a big thing. Right. They don't want to you know, put his right elbow out there. It was too valuable. And, and so I created in my mind this idea that here the Mets don't even care about Dwight Gooden's elbow to let him pinch any triple, by the way. Um, you know, yay. They, they won that game 9-2. But... Um, well, I, I, I could not find evidence that he actually hit. There was nothing that said like switch hit or anything. There was nothing in any of the write-ups. And I started like reaching out to people who might have been there to, to beat writers and to announcers. And it wasn't until I got to somebody at MLB and I explained what I was doing, he was kind enough to, you know, find, I knew that pretty sure they had this on, you know, this isn't you know, 1940. Right. They should have it somewhere in their archives. And he looked at it and he said, no, he was batting right-handed. Right yeah, now. so okay, well, there's my, 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 my big <laughs> dramatic thing, and it doesn't, it's no why I can no longer say that, but it's still kind of, well, you know, they were using Dwight Gooden as a pinch hitter, and they didn't care what happened to him as a pitcher anymore, and by the next June, like, he, you know, he's the last link to what came before, to right, the, you know, the 86 right. team, he was the last guy left, so I guess I'm always fascinated by, like, you know, where, where one era ends and another one begins, and it's, it's never clear, because things overlap, and 
just, you know, to, to fast forward to the end of Piazza's Met tenure, 2005, I, he's still a Met, he's still, you know, you still, when you would go to Shea Stadium, you'd still see his name on the back of people's jerseys and such. But it's not really Mike Piazza's era anymore. You know, they're, they're at that point, you know, they're pushing Pedro Martinez and Carlos Beltran and these young guys, David Wright and Jose Reyes. Just like now, it's not, you know, it's a different era for Jose Reyes and David Wright. So, um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, and again, I think that helped kind of informs the book because maybe that's one of the reasons the Mets have a hard time, you know, honoring their history. They never seem to know where it begins and ends. And, you know, one of the things I enjoyed writing most in this book was kind of re revisiting his last game as a Met which was something they had never done for anybody quite on that level. They, they stopped, you know, they used the seventh inning stretch to show a video and there's like a, literally a seven minute ovation. Now, I remembered it as a seven minute ovation, but did it really happen that way? Well, fortunately, thanks to YouTube, I was able to watch it. And yes, it was as breathtaking to watch in 2016 on my computer as it was in 2005 from the mezzanine. So, um, so a lot of it is just, in this case, you know, I, at least in my mind, there's a vague outline of what I wanted to do. But there was a lot of research just to confirm and expand upon. And unfortunately, when you do research, you find more things that you want to follow up on. And then you end up writing you know, way too much. But, um, but you have enough, at least. Well, we're gonna, I want to uh, fast backward, if that's a phrase. I'm not sure. But uh, this is what you write when Piazza has become a Met. So we got through 93 to 97. Uh, we can always go back to any of that in the Q&A, but uh, because nothing so epic could possibly come so easy, Mike Piazza left his Florida home after his five-game Marlin career on Saturday morning, May 23rd, and went to the wrong airport. It was Fort Lauderdale, not West Palm Beach, where his flight to LaGuardia and into the unknown awaited. Somehow, he got to Shea in time for the Mets' 410 engagement with the Milwaukee Brewers batting third and catching Al Leiter, the latter notwithstanding the small details that they had never worked together professionally before. Mike entered the stadium, then talked to reporters, then talked to his pitcher, then flung a Mets logoed equipment bag over his right shoulder and toted it through the tunnel on the first base side, then emerged into the home dugout, then accepted a ceremonial first pitch from a little girl as part of a previously scheduled promotion then got behind the plate for real, and then added his presence to a lineup that otherwise consisted of Brian McRae in center, Matt Franco at third, John Olerud at first, Carlos Bayerga at second, Butch Husky in right, Bernard Gilkey in left, and Ray Ordonez at short. This was his new team, his new park, his new life, all of it arranged barely 24 hours before. Uh, so now, that's where he is. And uh, what, what, from your own memory, what, take us back to, uh, personally for you, and probably for a lot of my fans. Uh, I think it was a fantasy that we were gonna get Mike Piazza. <laughs> um, just to kind of set the stage, the 1997 Mets were the first good team, first they had the first good season anyway. Uh, since the last of the kind of post-86 years. So it had been seven years since the Mets had contended and won more than they lost. And they came within four games of the Marlins who went on to win the World Series as a wild card. And the Marlins immediately dismantled because Wayne Huizenga, the owner, wanted to sell the team and decided that a baseball team will, will never really fly in South Florida unless I have a, you know, a roof over my stadium which doesn't seem to be flying now, but you know, that was a <laughs> thought. Um, so the Marlins become part of the story. The Dodgers, again, up to this point, are just a, a team that is better than the Mets, although they actually have the same record, 97, led by their superstar catcher. And again, which means nothing to us, except the Dodgers, this paragon of tradition in the National League, uh, you know, run by the O'Malley's for generations, uh, whether you want to hear their name or not, being so close to Brooklyn, uh, they sell. Peter O'Malley sells the team to News Corp, uh, Rupert Murdoch's operation, Fox, and these are not baseball people. So it just so happens that Piazza 
is about to become a free agent the following year. You know, and the, the way baseball works is he is looking for a payday, as theoretically we all are, but he's in a position to, uh, to do really well. And I'm sure that if they had just said, here's what we want to give you, that would have been very fair, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. But, you know, he knew what he was worth. And they wanted to play, you know, season of the pun, hardball. And this is what, you know, Fox did. As, you know, I mean, it's other operations around the world. They're going to make an example of, like, not so basically. We're not going to give into this ingrate, kind of like what happened 21 years before here in New York. Right. Um, so you've got them suddenly looking to move their superstar catcher. And you have the Marlins who just want to keep getting rid of players. And they will have they will take back a big contract if it means getting rid of, like, four pretty big contracts. And off to the side, you've got the New York Mets, who are this team that is on the precipice of being a legitimate contender that had been the 88 win year the year before. Uh, we're off to a decent start in 98, but they weren't drawing particularly well. They were operating both in the shadow of the Yankees, who were off to their historic 114 win season. They were in the shadow of the Braves, trying to keep up with them, who won the division every year, seemingly uh, since the dawn of time. And their power hitter, their catcher was on the shelf. This Todd Hundley, who had 71 home runs in the previous two seasons, uh, and who was a very popular player, he was out with a uh, shoulder, recovering from shoulder surgery. They didn't know when he was coming back. And they were trying to get by with catchers like Tim Spear and Alberto Castillo and Jim Tatum and Rick Wilkins and Todd Pratt, who had had a, a nice arrival out of semi-retirement in 97, but then was like sent down because he was kind of walking around like, hey, I've got it made. Anyway, none of these guys was Todd Hundley. Certainly none of them was, was Mike Piazza. And so you hear Piazza's for sale, or you know, you could for trade. Hey, let's get Piazza. I'm like, you're crazy. This is my thing. You're crazy. The Mets never spend on players. The last time they spent on players was that 92-93 period, which blew up in their face. And they kind of scared them away. And they were not good enough, really, where you could have thought a single player would make a difference. Well, now it's different. Now we're like, you know, pretty good. But still, how are we going to get? Who are we going to give up? How, how are we going to give them the Dodgers? Well, they like it. Goes to the Marlins, and the Marlins, you know, they go Gary Sheffield, a future Met, Bobby Bonilla, a past and future Met, a couple of other guys, and the Marlins have to take Todd Zeal and Mike Piazza. Piazza's clearly not going to hang around, and the Marlins are now going to shop him. This is where the Mets get, finally have something that looks like a plan. Uh, Steve Phillips, well, I was never crazy about, but he did, you know, the more I looked into it, you know, he really did engineer this thing. Had dealt with the Marlins the previous winter to get Al Ryder and Dennis Cook off of, you know, I keep using the phrase, fire sales, basically what it was. Like, well, they, they are, they're desperate to move Piazza's contract. They don't want to pay him for the rest of the year. They're not, they're a terrible team in 98. They've given up. We would call it tanking today. And... <laughs> The Mets have enough minor leaguers, including really the only guy who is probably well-known to Mets fans because he'd had a cup of coffee at that point was Preston Wilson, Mookie's stepson. And he was a number one draft pick. And one of the things, unfortunately, I had to cut from the, uh, the book I mentioned, and I think it's pretty well-known, Mike was a 62nd round pick. And the Dodgers benefited greatly because Tommy Lasorda was, but I like, I like the, the explanation Lasorda is given. Like, like, he's not my godson, but I am his godfather. That means, but, <laughs> but anyway, um, so one of the things that struck me in, in doing the research, well, where was the Mets like surprise pick? Where was the guy who came out of nowhere? Well, they didn't have that guy in the 90s. Well, where was the Mets number one pick? And he just drafted horribly, or at least just things didn't work out. And Preston Wilson took six years to make it to the major leagues. He actually has a couple of good games in the Met and they, so he's, you know, he's the bait. Preston Wilson and Ed Yarnell and Jeff Getz, all high draft picks. Marlins don't really care. <laughs> like, like, sure, Steve, whatever you say. And the Mets are going to take on a salary for 98, which was something like seven, eight million, which was huge for those days, and hope that it works out enough that they can sign Piazza. And of course, nobody's really sure. Piazza might not like New York. The Mets, you know, might bat 230 for all we know at Shea Stadium. But it's worth it for what we you know, refer to as a summer rental. So on May 22nd, 1998, 
I think it may have been the last time people, at least this was my experience, people pulled off the road to run to a payphone to break the news. Because that's what a friend of mine did. We were going <laughs> the game that night as it happened. And, you know, this, this was already the era of, of email existed and internet existed. Like people who I never spoke to were calling me. And I was calling other people. Did you hear? We got Mike Piazza. <laughs> Can you believe? And this is insane. He's Mike Piazza. It was like, you know, again, it's, it's, it's not a perfect allegory because he was at the end of his career, but you, you no doubt remember when we got Willie Mays. It's like, Willie Mays is on the Mets? Gary Carter is on the Mets? That, that kind of, even George Foster, even though, you know, he went downhill. Keith Hernandez, like, that, that sense of a superstar is on my team now, like, never dreamed would be here. And even when it was kind of in the air, when WFAN was talking about it, when it was being written about in the papers, it was like, yeah, but the Mets are too cheap. <laughs> or, you know, the Mets never make a big move. Well, they did. They made a huge move. And, you know, the paragraph you read, I kind of wanted to you know, give the sense of, like, one thing after another happening, which is why I used the word then 16 times in, in that description. But it just all happened so fast. And uh, you know, there was, you know, again, less than 24 hours to process it for us as well as for Piazza. And I remember right, being at the game against the Brewers the night before, they kept, I'm sure that they, they blew the budget on special effects on Diamond Vision. <laughs> Had this graphic, he's coming, 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 <laughs> like between innings, every end, half inning. <laughs> and it was like, tomorrow, Mike Piazza is a New York Met. You know, certainly it paid off in the short term in terms of box office, because there was a stampede on Shea Stadium for the first time since opening day. Right. And you know, you know, this opening day would be, you know, 50 odd thousand, the next game, 16,000. And, and it'd be free yeah, it'd be freezing. Yeah. So here it was just a, a perfect thing. So, you know, like anybody I wasn't at, at, at his first or second game, but I was, you know, not, not that I wouldn't have been watching anyway, I suppose, but it's like the Mike Piazza era is about to begin and you know, he, he steps up, I think it was his second at bat, and he hits a line drive, you know, right center. I swear, I'm thinking I have never seen a ball pick up speed. <laughs> the further it goes into the outfield. Like, if this is what Mike Piazza does, this is gonna be awesome. And they win that day, he catches a shot, a complete game shutout, in case you remember what those were uh, from Leiter. And he, you know, the next, they go off on a nine game winning streak. And, you know, they, well, I think, I guess they moved into the wild card lead. Uh, the Braves were already kind of too far ahead of them. But it's like for about a week and a half, this couldn't be better. And then, you know, being the Mets, you know, kind of came back to earth. And then 98 became a struggle. Um, you know, there were just always the kinds of games you would just pull your hair out. They, I, I, games I think would, would resonate with Mets fans to this day. They played the, for example, the, this was the second year of the Subway Series. Uh, the first year it was just three games at Yankee Stadium. The day, tomorrow, here's a happy anniversary for Mets fans. Uh, <laughs> 19 years ago, to, excuse me, 20 years ago tomorrow, Dave Malicki pitches the first uh, intracity for keeps game, shuts out the Yankees. Um, so they played three games in 97 up there. They played the next three at Shea in 98. And I was at the first one, the Friday night game, and immediately um, it was lighter. I think that lighter left with an injury. So brings in, Bobby Valentine brings in Mel Rojas. <laughs> Who was a who was a batting practice yeah, pitcher? Batting. Who they put on the roster at that moment? No, he was a he had once been a good relief pitcher, and he wasn't anymore. And he was right-hander to face Paul O'Neill, who was a left-hander in the middle of a great season. And O'Neill, the Mets are clinging to a precarious lead, and you know, Paul O'Neill hits a three-run homer, and it was not a lot of fun being at the ballpark that night. And oh, they lost two out of three. They a week later they're in Atlanta, brand new Turner Field in the second season. And, and the way that we, we speak as Mets fans of Turner Field is the House of Horrors basically began that weekend, um, culminating in this play at the plate where Piazza is the catcher and Michael Tucker, uh, well, a future Met. Again, the Mets end up getting all their nemeses almost, except for Roger Clemens. Um, you know, he comes <coughs> flying spikes high. He appears to be tagged out. There's no re official replay in those days. It's called safe by Angel Hernandez. And who becomes like public enemy number one among umpires forever in Mets fans' minds. And they get swept at Turner Field, and Valentine gives these always gave great quotes that that was a lousy, illegal slide. He lands in Mike's, my catcher's lap, and P. 
Piazza, I think, got fined for like cursing out Angela or Franco got suspended. He, John Franco went 0 and 8 that year. It was just one of those. They were a good team, but something was always going wrong. And Piazza, in the meantime, he encounters some turbulence as, as a batter. Um, the fans are patient for about five seconds, and people who were <laughs> pulling off the road to call their friends in May are booing him in July. I, I wouldn't say it was, you know, it wasn't universal, but you know, people got impatient, and he hits. And you know what? When when you're, it's a little bit like Cespedes, and you can name other guys. When Johan was here, like when you're not seeing the guy every day or every fifth day, like he must be the greatest. I wish we had him. When you see him every day, it's like, hey, what's he doing going 0 for 4? What's he doing, you know, not having a hit for three days in a row? And Piazza was pressing the fans. Not everybody. I never booed, but. Um, you know, it was just it was just a tough summer, and it was like, well, he's not, you know. So we had Piazza for four months, and now he's not going to stick around. And well, what was that all about? <laughs> and things turned because he's a great player, and the Mets had enough. John Lowood was having a one of the best seasons in Met history himself. That 354, they had you know legitimate talent, and they got to a three-way race for the wild card. You know, the Braves were prohibited from running away, but the Giants of Barry Bonds, the Cubs of Sammy Sosa in the year of the home run. And the Mets of Mike Piazza went at it in August and September, not necessarily playing one another because of the schedule, but each kind of, you know, stepping over one another. And Piazza has a tremendous September. It's this, <coughs> the one I remember the most. It's dramatic home run off of Bi future Met, Billy Wagner, uh, to a game that they were down to their last strike in the Astrodome. And then, because Franco is fried, they use Dennis Cook. He gives up a home run to Brad Osmus, and Todd Huntley is one shining moment at 98. Uh, hits a pinch hit home run to win in the 11th. So what I'm saying is it's an incredible, you know, this incredible times are beginning. It just doesn't work out because they lose their last five games. Um, and now the question is, does Piazza stick around? And to a lot of people's surprise, he does not test the free agent market. He says, you know, he gave a, he himself, he also gives great quotes, even though he wasn't really like a holler guy. He didn't really seek out the spotlight. It kind of came to him, but he said, if I'm going to get booed, I might as well get booed by the best which is a hell of a compliment to Mets fans and New Yorkers. So he signs a seven-year deal after that season. And on one hand, never being really excited. We still have my piazza. And on the other hand, it's like, that's a long time. It was $91 million. And again, it's, it's one of those things. These days, like, I, I don't even blink because who knows what it means, right. these salaries. But at the time, it's like, well, now they're not going to be able to sign any pitchers. <laughs> but, and also, we're going to be, this guy is going to be, you know, not, this goes through 2005, he'll be 37 years old. He'll still be paying him all this. Will they will I be able to sign pitchers then? But in the short term, it's like, you know, he's here, we're here. This is awesome. <laughs> and uh, that's, where, uh, that's where we were for sure, like Piazza. I'm going to ask one more question, then we're going to turn it over to our uh, Met and non-Met fans in the uh, crowd. And then when we get to the Q&A, feel free to ask Greg uh, anything, well, anything about the Mets, if you want, or anything else. But uh, it doesn't have to just be about this. But I want to ask uh, one more question for now. Uh, you mentioned a, a dramatic home run that he hit. But uh, I guess you could say arguably, but uh, maybe not, the most emotional home run in some ways, uh, certainly in Met history, I guess, is uh, when he hits the home run, the first game the first game played in New York after September 11th. Yeah. Do you think if he, if he does not do that, if he's viewed by Met fans in the rearview mirror uh, the same way if he, if he never hits that home run? I think everything that he had done to that point kind of solidified him already as the guy we came to. When I, when I wrote about, and really I knew I would have to get, I don't mean to make it sound like a chore, but I would have to get to that home run. It was kind of challenging in my mind because it's been written about so much and talked about so much. And I have kind of mixed feelings about it because I, the whole idea, oh, you know, if you got to heal a city, like, you're crazy. It's right. a home run. I was, and I was at that game. Um, and it was a great moment. What I remember about being at that game, and I, I think what kind of informs my thinking on your question, you know, I had a, a Friday night ticket plan with my my friend and longtime blog partner, Jason Fry, and you know, they're losing by a run. It's a weird night to begin with for all the reasons you can imagine, being in a large public place with 40,000 people after what had happened 10 days earlier and still kind of grappling with the idea that any of this matters. 
and Piazza comes up with a runner on, the eighth inning, down a run, it's the home run. And of all the things I remember, I remember three things about the moment. One, there was no you know, rock and roll part two or anything. Uh, Bessie rounds the bases, because I'd gotten a lot of games in 2001, they played rock and roll part two, or they would play the guitar part from Don't Won't Get Fooled Again or something like that, nothing. But the sound that there was, the rustling of these little American flags they had given out. Because people just didn't know what else to do with them or how else to express their opinions. So, you know, ruffle up like that. But what I remember, I turned to Jason, Jason turned to me wordlessly, and we were just like, like, of course, of course Mike Piazza was going to do that. Because we had seen in a baseball context him do that sort of thing. We were at the game where the 10 run inning that overcomes the 8-1 deficit against Atlanta, which couldn't have been bigger in the moment. And the kinds of home runs he had hit you know, throughout 99, and you know, the Billy Wagner one that I mentioned, throughout 2000, and to get them back in this race in 2001. And it was a, a smaller detail in the scheme of things, but the Mets had been just having this terrible year after the World Series, sort of like they were for most of last year, and they just caught fire down the stretch, and suddenly they're in striking distance of Atlanta. So you know you've got you've got that in the background, but mostly you've got we're watching a baseball game and we're standing and cheering something and we're perhaps smiling, um, and you knew like inst is it, to to use the uh, uh, WCBS FM was you know, was the oldies station. And, they would now and then play a new song and say, you know, it's a new classic, instant classic, or something like that. This was an instant classic. You knew from the second he hit it that we'd be talking about it in places like this years later. <clears throat> so to take everything that Piazza was before that, he was, you know, number, you know, <laughs> number one in our hearts and minds. This just elevated it. And that would kind of, you know, become his legacy. I haven't read every Hall of Fame plaque, but I don't know how many Hall of Fame plaques describe a single home run. I mean, if Bobby Thompson or Roger Maris were in the Hall of Fame, you might see that. But, you know, and, you know, and again, it describes his career in, in detail. But like, hit the home run on September 21st, or whatever, however it's phrased. So, and like, like I said, I, I enjoyed it certainly. You know, you know when I really began to buy the idea of baseball and the Mets, Piazza having that kind of impact. I went to the game two days later. They're about to sweep the Braves and really make their move. And this is going to be like, you talk about 1969, this is going to be a miracle. This is a city that could use something like this. It's not going to solve anything, but wow, you talk about a team coming to a city's you know, emotional rescue. And they blow it. <laughs> There's a 4-1 lead, I believe it was. And Armando Benitez, a lot of saves except at the moment we really needed one. Gives up, gives up home run to Brian Jordan and they go to extra innings. Jared Riggin gives up another home run to Brian Jordan. They lose. I'm just so beside myself. The only time in my life I, I cursed at somebody for the uh, crime of rooting for another team. I saw some kid in a Braves cap walking the seven train. I'm like, you. <laughs> and it's like, my wife is with me. And I'm just like, and, and who did, you know, again, puts up with a lot, and I, I try not to give her cause for shame, but she says, oh, honey. And, but the thing is, I realize I'm upset about a baseball game. I can't believe I'm upset about a baseball game. You know, again, two weeks before, of course I'm upset about a baseball game. It's the Mets. And up to that point, I was like, who cares? <laughs> and now it's like, well, I guess, I'm not saying, quote, unquote, it's okay to care again, but, you know, it's not so much like that there was a great home run, and now baseball is back. It's like, I'm annoyed by the Mets again. This is, this is the beginning of normality <laughs> in New York. So um, I, think, I, I think, you know, again, this was, if not exactly the icing on the cake, I think this, this brought to another dimension, but I think uh, he would still be Mike Piazza. He was Mike Piazza before then. He's just Mike Piazza more so because of that. Okay, so who wants to lead off? How are you? From, from the bleachers. Was it a close call for him to, ret uh, to retire, to go into the Hall of Fame as a Met? And is it possible that he hadn't hit that home run? He might not have. I think it's 
possible. I mean, you know, the the player doesn't make that call anymore, but he certainly has a voice in it. Um, talk about that a little in the book, how these guys were portrayed. I, I I wonder if it's like the era of talk radio, sports talk radio, that has made it an evergreen topic. How is so and so going to go into the Hall of Fame? Because I don't really. When Seaver went in, I remember reading like one thing very briefly, which was like, oh, you know, it's a good thing that he went back to, uh, he tried to make a comeback in 87 after leaving the Mets. Let him go twice, being the Mets, and he tried to make a comeback. The Mets were short of pitching. There were a lot of injuries. Tell me if that sounds familiar. And 30 years ago this week, he was in the process of trying to come back, and it didn't work out. And I remember reading at the time, well, you know, it's nice that they at least had this rapprochement because now he will go, and there's no danger that he won't go in the Hall of Fame as a man. It didn't even occur to me he wouldn't. But that be, kind of was, became a thing after Seaver. Reggie Jackson, it became a thing, and he, like, Steinbrenner gave him a job, and like, suddenly he's not in Oakland A anymore. He's a Yankee for life, and kind of reached ahead with Wade Boggs. Wade Boggs, Red Sox mostly, and won a World Series with the Yankees, goes to his hometown team, the Devil Rays, gets a 3,000 hit there, and suddenly kind of lets it be known, I'm gonna go in as a Devil Ray when, it, when the time comes. It's like, you gotta be kidding. <laughs> um, and you know, like I said, 3,000 hits in hometown, I didn't think it was that crazy, but apparently there was a, it's never been proven, but it like, reported there was a clause in his contract with the Devil Rays. So anyway, um, the Hall of Fame from, at that point took it away from the players. and said, we'll decide how you're gonna be portrayed for history. Now, if I'm totally objective about it, if I'm just some, some guy sitting in the middle of the country who was never a Mets fan or a Dodgers fan, and you told me like Piazza's going as a Dodger, I'd probably shrug. Because he was a huge star in Los Angeles. He's the, that's the reason we wanted him. But I honestly think you know, he just transcended just being an all-star catcher once he came to New York, once he led the Mets to these new heights, getting to the World Series. Um, it wasn't like Gary Carter where I would have loved for Gary Carter to a Mets cap, but he was an expo longer and meant more to them. Even in passing, you know, after his passing, they have statues for him and name boulevards. We haven't done that. Um, so, you know, that's fine. But uh, I think Piazza and, you know, just forged this kind of relationship. So if nine of the 921 home run hadn't happened, who knows? But it did. And I think that kind of solidified his, his standing. And I don't, think it, I don't think it was ever a question in Mike's mind. And I don't know to what extent it was a question in the Hall's mind. But uh, I'm happy he went in as a man. I think every Met fan um, has their favorite Piazza home run. You know, mine was 1 that doesn't get a lot of play and I think because of the way the game ended and again you know we talk, there's always kind of a other side of the coin <laughs> in these Mets stories um, game 6 of the 99 NLCS certainly to that point and maybe with one exception since then I think it's the greatest game I have ever seen as a, as a baseball fan uh, they fall behind 5 nothing after this mind you this is two days after the Grand Slam single game, which was 15 innings in the rain, Bobby Valentine using everybody but his starter, starting pitcher from the night before and his starting pitcher in the next game, if there is a next game, and they had to win that game just to get to a game six, and of course it's raining, bases are loaded, they just tied it after giving up the lead, and Robin Ventura hits a grand slam home run except Todd Pratt, who hit the, this was, I love that 19 <laughs> Hits the home run to in because Piazza is injured <laughs> during that series and yeah not not to like I don't mean to keep doing those Russian nesting dolls I'm not answering six, <laughs> I like to answer six questions you didn't ask before getting to the one you did but um, <laughs> but um, it it struck me and it's in the book the last game of that season October scheduled game October third again that that date they have to beat the Pirates to clinch a spot in a wild card play-in game. They don't, you know, they're pretty much screwed. And Piazza is up, the bases are loaded, it's the ninth inning, it's a tie game, exactly what you got him for. They haven't been in the playoffs in 11 years, and what happens? 
Brad Quant of the Pirates, an ex-Net, not, not a future Met, throws a wild pitch, and Melvin Moore, who would have literally, that was literally just got his fifth hit of his major league career, you know, scampers home. And Piazza just kind of standing there, doesn't know what to do with himself, just in a daze. And then a week, not, six days later, Pratt hits that 10th inning home run to w win the division series, to get them to the championship series. And they are an unlikely character. And you think about it, twice, the catcher, the Mets go out and get the superstar catcher, pay him $90 million, twice the catcher is up at bat with the season literally on the line. And Piazza does nothing in either case, because one, there's a wild pitch, two, he's not playing because he hurt his thumb. And they win anyway. <laughs> um, so it's that kind of season. I, I like to say that instead of an LDS winner and wild card winner on those banners they have for postseasons, I think it should just say 1999 best drama because that's what the Mets were like that year. <laughs> so anyway, just a fast forward, they finally, their season, they're scratching, they're clawing, they get to game six, trying to become the first team to ever come back from 3-0 because they lost the first three games to the Braves. Game four is like a footnote and that was like an incredible come from behind up John Rocker who becomes this villain in New York, somebody who didn't become a Met. And they win that dramatically, they win the Ventura, the Grand Slam, oh yeah, Todd Pratt tackles Robin Ventura, in case you didn't know that. So they, they can't call the Grand Slam a home run, it's a Grand Slam single. They go to Atlanta, oh my God, if we can just win tonight, we can force game seven, we'll have Rick Reed going, it's gonna be great. The lighter gives up five runs in the first inning, doesn't get anybody out. And you figure the season's over, this is horrible, <laughs> this is what it came down to. And then, whole bunch of, you know, without going into all this, you know, they score three runs and suddenly you're back in the game and it's five to three. And then they give up two runs and it's seven three, now they're screwed again. But they, there's this, they bring in John Smoltz, Bobby Cox brings in John Smoltz, who at this point is still a starting pitcher. But, you know, he, he's got, you know, he literally has literally one Hall of Famer after another at his disposal. So it's like, sure, I'll bring in John Smoltz, I don't need him. I'll finish off the Mets this way because I'm cool. I'm Bobby Cox, we're the Braves. We do this to the Mets. And somehow the Mets light up John Smoltz. Like, Olerud, uh, Henderson, I forget the exact order at this point. Matt Franco gets a big hit. And then it's like seven to five. Piazza comes up, and I, I always call it the, um, you remember a terrible Sly Stallone movie from 1986 called Cobra, where he's like this vigilante cop or something. And the catchphrase, or at least they hoped it would be, was, what people would say to criminals, and you're the disease, I'm the cure. It's weird, I know you can <laughs> beat you. Um, which again, I'm surprised they don't do with the press at the White House. Anyway, um, Mike Piazza comes up and I just call it his Cobra shot because there was something about it. I go, okay, here's John Smoltz, he's gonna settle down. Piazza just hits this searing line drive of a home run, knocks the game at seven. We were down five nothing. It's seven to seven against the Braves at Turner Field where we haven't, we won one game all year. We did one no games the year before. Even 97, when they were kind of perilously hanging in, the Braves like beat them like, you know, 10 to two and nine to three, something like that. Um, this is amazing. And it wasn't over, because then the Mets take the lead and they're up eight to seven. And then John Franco gives up a run. <laughs> and they take the lead again, extra innings. And Armando Benitez gives up the run. And then Kenny Rogers comes in because there's like, you've used all your relief pitchers and now you're forcing as a starter. And just in, in defense of Kenny Rogers, you know, the, he went, the Mets won all seven games he started at Shea Stadium. There, there's a site where you can look up a team's record in games he played for that team. And you can do it by ballpark. Kenny Rogers has, the Mets, when Kenny Rogers was on the mound, had their best record in franchise history, seven and oh. Nobody had more than like two wins. Uh, he helped them get to that point. So it's a little disappointing, sort of, that like all he's remembered for, but how can we not remember? He gives up a double, there's a bunt, there's a couple of intentional walks, they get one, yeah, so there's one out, and you know, the bases are loaded, he walks Andrew Jones, brings in Gerald Williams, future Met. And, <laughs> uh, and as remember, Bob, Bob Murphy's description was like, what a horrible ending. <laughs> like no pretense anymore of happy recaps. <laughs> so that's the, you know, in the middle of all that, Piazza makes that happen. And just as a postscript to that, and this is the, the work of Lisa Olson, who was a terrific columnist for the Daily News, where I was very honored to send a copy of this book to. And I quoted from here and there. She 
you know, like, like other reporters covered, you know, the, the post-game scene and wrote up how like, the Mets are sort of these, you know, tough guys on the verge of tears because they've just given everything they can and lost 10 to 9 with game, you know, after, you know, winning 4 to 3 and 3 to 2 and losing three close games. And Sean Dunstan, who had become a Met at the end of July and had this you know, enormous at bat in the Grand Slam single inning, 12 pitches before he could single and he steals second. But he's only met for like two and a half months. But he grew up a Mets fan. He stands there and says, like, I'm so proud to be a New York Met. You guys make me so proud. And Mike Piazza, he could just count his money. But no, he, like, he's out there because Piazza's whole postseason was, I mentioned the, the injury kept him out of Diamondback series. He's getting, these days they would take you out. There's protocols where he was getting hit in the head every game by a, a backswing or something. And like, he just hung in there as long as he could. And it's just like the whole, the whole team is in tears at that point. And Piazza just at the end, like, he gets in, he doesn't fly back to the team, with, with the team to New York. He gets in the car and drives back to his house in California. He just had to get away. It was just so overwhelming. So, you know, that's the game I remember. That's one of the home runs. Again, it wasn't the only thing about that game, but um, I think it's, it's evidence of, of the impact he had and the way he could turn a game. Unfortunately, you know, again, it didn't win it like that Trevor Hoffman game and some of the others we talked about, but uh, it, it was like the place you were, you wanted a guy like that to, to step up, and it, you know, it wasn't as dr you know, it, it wasn't dramatic in the sense of the September 21st thing, but that's what sticks with me. Before the next question, I just want to make an observation because when you asked about the home run, uh, and this is one of the things that makes baseball so beautiful, you give this long description, but you pick this home run, and they lose the game. It, it, yeah. it wasn't this home run where they it wasn't Bobby Thompson's home run or something. Yeah. It was this home run. The Mets end up losing but there's a certain emotional aspect to it. And nothing against Mike Piazza in any way, I probably shouldn't even say this, but people know I'm, I am a Mets fan, but I started to think when, when I first got the book and started to read it, I'm not taking away anything he was as a ball player, but I started thinking about who my favorite catchers were as a, as a Mets mm -hmm. fan. Just, I'm not saying in order of talent, obviously. He was my, at best, my fourth favorite Mets catcher as a Mets fan. Uh, and there's just certain, there's certain emotions that get attached to, mm -hmm. to, to players, to moments. I just want to make that observation as part of what, what makes baseball so... Who's your favorite? Well, my favorite is Gary Carter. He's one, two is way below number one. Okay. But Carter far and away. And for me, be, between two, three is, they're going to seem odd, but Jerry Grody yes. and uh, John Stearns. I don't know why, but there was just some, some emotional thing to this guy who went out and team was like a little league team and this guy gave everything he had every moment of that was the impression I had anyway at that age of that guy uh, a lot of it is how old you are at a certain moment and certain things but uh, certainly not saying John Stearns was better than Mike Piazza but uh, it's just it's part of what the emotion of baseball uh, the yeah, fandom absolutely. that ties in with baseball well I mean I mentioned Melvin Moore's name in passing Melvin Moore to this day is one of my all-time favorite players he was a Met for parts of two years, just made an impression. Uh, that somebody in the course of talking about this book who, about those mid-90s teams, mentioned Joe Orsalak, who I always thought of as Joe Schlobotnik from Charlie <laughs> I love Joe Orsalak. Right. Like one of the times I snapped today uh, at somebody when they said like, Joe Orsalak is dead wood, like, Joe Orsalak is not dead wood. Isn't that great? But you know, yeah, you, you do form these guys. I loved John Stearns. Um, it's funny, like, I actually wrote a book where you know, Piazza's the sensible subject and I had a great regard for his career. Um, he was never my favorite player, per se. It was, like, it was almost like these guys who are, are just, especially the ones who come from elsewhere, used to have this, this uh, conversation with somebody I used to know. Like, there's this guy is great, this guy's the man. In fact, David Wright had used that phrase as a rookie, like, wow, he's like, yeah, this guy's the man. And it's like, it's like he, he's. A, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I love Tom Seaver because I was six years old and it was 1969, and he became my favorite player. And he was homegrown. Well, that was worth. But it's like I admired Piazza, and I, in a sense, you know, figuratively speaking, thank thank the good Lord for making him a Met. But it was almost like I didn't want to get too close. I got kind of like the Cespedes, uh, with Johan when he was here. Pedro, when he was still Pedro, they, they, when he came to the Mets, there's a, a little bit of distance almost. Um, and the Mets, you know, just 
sort, sort of inadvertently brought up, this is like the one position where the Mets have been mostly blessed with really, you know, most other franchises, if they had Gary Carter would stand without a question as the greatest catcher they ever had. And there's some people who still feel that way because Piazza wasn't a hell of a defender. And, you know, John Stearns, I had that same sense of, I just couldn't believe how many bad baseball games he had to take part in, never gave up. And Jerry Grody, you know, still listen to Tom Seaver talk about Jerry Grody, who understood what this guy meant. And Todd Hundley, who, you know, on a very small, Metsian scale, certainly compared to, to what Mike was doing with the Dodgers, he was, quote, unquote, the man for a couple of years. And I remember there was, one of the first people I spoke to about this book when I started working on it, first thing she told me was, I remember being mad that they were like, moving out top on them. Like, let Piazza play left field. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, you know, all, all it took was like, you know, a week with Mike Piazza, a weekend with Mike Piazza, and it was like we all kind of changed our mind. But funny, I don't think we've had a really good catcher since then. Laduca for one year, really good. Darno getting our hopes up briefly. Josh totally caught a no-hitter, so I can't say anything bad about him. I feel bad about Brian Schneider because I wrote like, I just couldn't stand Brian Schneider. And it wasn't a personal, this is the thing. It's sort of like the, the, the inverse of, oh, Melvin Moore, I love him. Joe Orsalak, I just couldn't stand Brian Schneider. There's something so incredibly boring about him. But I wrote something like that on the blog. And some guy writes to me, oh, I'm a personal friend of Brian Schneider. Brian Schneider is this like excellent human being. Brian Schneider does all this charity stuff. I am the, wor the worst person in the world for not loving <laughs> Brian Schneider. I apologize. He's, and, you, and you're just reminded that these are human beings and you try not to get too caught up in that sort of thing. So um, uh, here's, here's to Gary Carter and, and all the catchers. Absolutely. <laughs> it's pretty assumed that he didn't get into the Hall of Fame earlier because there was a PED suspicion mm -hmm. on him. Do you have a take on that yourself? Yeah, I, so I devoted a chapter to that because I don't think you could just say, and then he went in the Hall of Fame four years later. Um, thought it was kind of telling, sort of like a, the confluence of events. I think what, I mean, certainly the PED or steroids, as we called them then, were known about by baseball fans. But I think the flashpoint was that congressional hearing, the one where McGuire, I'm not here to talk about the past, and Rafael Palmeiro with the wagging of the index finger, which I'm sure he wishes he could take back. Um, Mike Piazza that day was a, an active player in the clubhouse on a rainy day in Port St. Lucie. And the big story was Joe McEwing was being cut, being released, because the Mets had gotten Chris Woodward. So then, just as an aside, the, the last of the 2,000 Mets besides Piazza, the last of the Glory Day Mets, just shows you how these things turn over. So anyway, Piazza at the time was quoted like, yeah, I'm gonna watch these hearings, it's interesting, whatever. And he's not knowing that this is sort of dictating what his Hall of Fame future is, because once that happens, you know, none of these guys who you would assume are gonna go in the Hall of Fame on the first ballot are going in. A lot of them still aren't. Um, I think my, my take is that they never, yes, you know, there have been quote unquote whispers and people have made observations and you'd be probably naive to not wonder because of the way baseball was during that period and gee, everybody just decided to hit more home runs than ever before, but my, my feeling is that they, they never found anything. All the tests that have been revealed, all the evidence that the books that have been written on this subject, you think in New York and Los Angeles, you think somebody would have had something on Piazza concrete? So, and even if you did, even if you, you showed up tomorrow, look, here's the, the lab test that shows Piazza was juicing on September 21st. He ran back into the clubhouse and got a shot so he could hit that home run. He hit the home run. Those, those seasons happened. You know, nobody's taking away. I, I'm not a fan of Barry Bonds by any means, but Barry Bonds is the best hitter I ever saw. <laughs> and it kind of bugs me in a way, and not, not because he's a sweetheart of a guy by any indication. It's like, let's not pretend that Barry Bonds didn't hit 73 home runs or didn't have this incredible career. Let's not pretend that the summer of 98 with McGuire and Sosa never happened. Again, we may not want to look at it the same way, but let's not pretend that these seasons didn't exist. I think that was a that uh, you know, motivated me a little bit in terms of this. Like maybe that's why the up to now the '90s haven't really been written about that much in a historical sense. So I understand the suspicions. I understand kind of the it's kind of a do-over for baseball writers who kind of didn't really pursue as a class 
the story and you know when, when the home runs were being celebrated, and now they want to make sure. Well, we don't want to. You know, it was like you know Mark McGuire had a highway named after him in, in St. Louis, and they had to go up and take the sign down. Uh, you don't want to feel bad that you honored somebody who, you know, O.J. Simpson still has a Heisman Trophy or, or still has a number retired by the Bills, whatever it is. I'm like nobody is thrilled about that, but it happened. So um, I understood. I understand why it happened. I just. It bothered me that they never really had anything on Piazza other than circumstantial. Look at his back. back. Yeah, everybody points to Murray Chass, and there yeah. were some other some other guys who uh, said stuff like that, and they kind of look at you like you know you're cross-eyed to use an expression um, when you say like you know I I've, I've never I don't think he did it. It's so like I don't know that he did anything, and they never revealed any proof. And say, uh, say well, it happened. The era happened, and I, and I noticed you know. Pudge Rodriguez is going in, Mike, who certainly been suspected. I mean, literally, the hardcore, we haven't, you know, we have this on you, has gone in yet. Barry Bonds is not going to, Roger Clemens is not going to, Mark McGuire, who you would have, remember, Mark McGuire was on the all-century team. It was like him and Lou Gehrig <laughs> were like the two first basemen of the 20th century by consideration of America's fans. Like, the, the Mets would have hosted that ceremony had they beaten the Braves. It ended up being a Turner Field. You think of all the great first basemen for the years. Hank Greenberg and Jimmy Fox and Eddie Murray, former Met, and you know, you get Neil Hodges, who should be in the Hall of Fame. You, know, you mentioned a lot of guys. It was no, when Mark McGuire's on, on, on the same level as Lou Gehrig. Like, nobody would say that today. Uh, you know, we, we do make judgments, we do change judgments based on evidence, but you know, this, this happened. You can't go back in and scratch it out. The, uh if people want to ask, assuming he has time, if you want to ask Greg any questions about the current state of the Mets, I'm sure Greg is glad to answer them. Just for the podcast, though, we're going to have to uh, end this part of it. So to those listening, the name of the book, again, Piazza, Catcher, Slugger, Icon, Star, the author, Greg Prince. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.